Hello again, listeners, and thank you for joining me for another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. As always, I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Vent. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. On to my special guest now, and this man is someone who I connected with at the very start of Vent and has been a massive supporter of the platform and everything that I try and do at Vent. He's overcome immense obstacles, in- endured hardships I can't even comprehend, and is a shining example on how to turn negatives into positives. That man is Dean Clark. Dean is a personal trainer and studio manager at Rock Health and Fitness. Dean has also been a personal trainer for six years. Prior to that, he served in the British Army in both the 9th and 12th Royal Lancers, as well as the Brigadier Reconnaissance Force, and has completed tours of both Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. Dean, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. First of all, how are you doing? I'm very well today. Excellent, Good. mate. Good. Um, so now, for the listeners who don't know, we got introduced by a fellow event champion and, and pod special guest, Verity Bramwell, didn't we? We did, a long time ago. A long time ago. How did you know Verity? How did you get to know her? Oh, I, th- I think it was just the set social media connection. Mm. So, like, with it, I think it was about 18, come on, two years ago. Mm. It, all, it all unfolded two mm. years ago. Mm. And then um, I, um, just through social media, I started linking myself with suicide prevention charities mm. and things that I could connect with on a level mm. because I felt like there wasn't nothing out there at the mm. time. And that's how it all started. And... I went through a period of time where I tried to try to be of a support, but then equally be of a support to me. Mm. Um, I went on one of their uh, courses, the Ollie Foundation, the Ollie yeah, Foundation yeah. courses, and oh, what it it was like a whirlwind of emotion. Mm. Like I had a ridiculous panic attack mm. because actually on there it was everybody that was working with people mm. I was the only person that had actually kind of good I'd lived experience gone through the experience yeah, yeah. I tried to hold it back and I it, I talk about the anxiety basis next time and it was it was a big shell shock because mm. it was the first time I sat there mm. and listened to everybody else's story mm. and it was well I've never felt emotions like it mm. and um, that's how it started and the course is phenomenal though what they do should be nationally that that should be in every school mm. that should be in every work office it should be mandatory mm. that that whole course should be mandatory for absolutely everybody to take part in two days that's all it is mm. right so now we've got that out of the way shall we get started yeah let's go So the first topic I wanted to get in with you, Dean, is your military service. Now, to kick us off, just tell me a bit about how you joined the British Army, what your motivations were, and and how old you were when you did. Oh, wow. Um, It's a little bit cliche start, really. I I wasn't the best teenager. Mm. And I was was steering to quite a a bad place, really. Mm. I started 
taking drugs at quite an early age mm. and everyone says it's uh, mixing with the wrong crowd mm. I, I disagree with that I was part of the wrong crowd mm. I, I, I do disagree with that thing and um, yeah and, uh, it was in the back of my mind I took <clears throat> my granddad was established in the army very high up he mm. was part of special forces the SAS which I had no idea about anyway but he was in the army and, did you look up to him a lot when oh yeah, yeah I loved yeah. my granddad mm. um my dad was away on the services quite a bit. No, and it's not his issue, but... So it runs with the family. Yeah, it runs yeah, with yeah. the family. So, yeah, my granddad would go shooting with him and, and that was where my kind of passion came. And then I got into this kind of mindset that if I went to the army, I don't need school. Mm. And that was my point blank. Mm. That's how it was. So my GCSEs I didn't bother with, all these things. Because you were quite... Was, you were so set on... I was so driven. Yeah. In, in my opinion, you didn't need none of that to go in the army. Mm. So I was like, why do I need school? Like my, mm. my whole opinion of life was that I need to graft and work hard. Mm. Um, and I remember playing this day, something happened. It was I got involved with the police and I did quite a bit growing up. Mm. Um, and that continued quite a bit in my life. I remember my dad had a conversation with me mm. and he, he was like, you, you are a no-hoper. It's a really big it's argument. It's a big intervention he had. Massive, yeah. huge intervention. Yeah. And I, I sort of sat and he's like, you're hope. He says, you are a disgrace. Because of what you're doing, you're not, you're not, mm. you're not actually reflecting like the morals of this family. Mm. You, you know, you, you're spiraling out of control, and you're going to mm. be a little bit like my older sister, which is another mm. subject. Um, and it was like I got to do something. So at sixteen, my dad took me to the recruitment centre in mm. Luton, mm. and uh, I was bricking it. But I was excited. But I was bricking. It. I was so it was like nervous, quite, excited. That yeah, sort yeah. Of thing. They're yeah. both similar yeah. things. That's yeah. a mix of emotions. And I remember in the car, and I was dressed. I had I had his trousers on. <laughs> so we didn't have much. I yeah. had his trousers on. One of his ties and a baggy white shirt. And I was this little skinny runty <laughs> kid, like no nothing on me at all, just just skin and bone. And we was parked in the Sainsbury car park. And he goes, he's like, right, that's it. You know. And I was like, what? You ain't coming with me. And that was the first realization where that process of becoming an adult, mm. like. Happen, this quick. is your decision. Yeah, this yeah, is my yeah, decision. Yeah. So um, I walked to the recruitment centre and um, said that I wanted to sign up, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, actually, you've got to come back. Mm. You've got to fill out some forms. You've got to come back. It's not really mm. how it works. Mm. Okay, cool. Went back. And my dad came the second time. We sat there and went through all the process. And then within half an hour of being there, the, the guy was like, there's an intake mm. in September. And mm. this was like the summer. And what year was this? So this was 2004, 2005. So just after Iraq War started then, basically. Yeah, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was two, yeah, 2005, 2004, yeah. 2005. I always get like, blurred about that day. You do sometimes, don't yeah, you? You, not, you remember it's, parts it's, of the day, but you don't remember yeah, the whole, it's all of it. It's a thing, but yeah. I won't absorb the date. Mm. And um, yeah, he said, look, there's an intake in September, there's a big rush for the Iraq mm. because mm. they're trying to get people in. And mm. then I think that was quite an issue at the time. There was mm. a huge influx. Because of the controversy of, around it. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, needed, they needed men. Mm. Like, they needed mm. guys. So it was a bit of, like, a demand for mm. it. And then uh, my dad was, I met, my dad was there on that part. And I, and I looked and I was like, sign me up. Mm. Like, and that was it. And then Oath of the Allegiance. And then before I knew it, I was stood at the gates of Winchester, ATR Winchester, Army Training Regiment Winchester, and uh, still 16. And oh, I was, 16, yeah, I still had those gates. Yeah, yeah. I was, this, this all happened very quick. Yeah. 
And I remember just looking, I was just looking at the gates in Winchester and I was like, fuck. <laughs> wow. And my dad just, like, my mum couldn't cope, she was too emotional. And mm. everyone was that little send-off, it was mm. all sad. Mm. And I just, I just looked and I was like, my dad just, just looked and he had like a tear and that was it. So I walked into the gates and my 12 weeks basic training started. Mm. Mm. And um, yeah, that was when you learned to grow up mm. slightly. You must have had to, those 12 week basic training, I mean, you're a 16 year old, right? So you're a 16 year old Yeah, man. it's about 16 yeah. and eight, nine months. I mean, God, I was a seal pup at 16. I can't even yeah. imagine what it must have been like to do 12 weeks basic with men, you know, sometimes yeah, twice your age. Right, yeah, 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 sure. So I mean, what did that teach you about yourself when you were going through that? Did it toughen you up? Did it, did it break you at times, you know? Yeah. 100%. I think it just exposes you. Mm. Like, it takes you straight back to where, you, that vulnerability. Mm. Um, and then that's where your true colours come out of a person and your true character comes out. And mm. you, I think you surprise Fight yourself. Fight or flight. Yeah. Yeah, massively. Mm. It's the, I think you surprise yourself with how you're feeling and mm. how you've got to do things. Mm. And the little things of that kind of institutionalised environment that you you don't know about but what mm. you thought you knew about because you watched the bloody film mm. and, and you read all these books full metal jacket yeah, and all that sort played, of stuff yeah played, I think it's Medal of Honor Medal of Honor when I grew up yeah all these things and yeah it, it, it starts off a very big impact but it's a process and you do you do realise that um you, you've got a lot of growing up to do mm. fast mm. and Iraq is looming. Mm. So I think in the back of your mind. Constantly yeah. on and on the news there's mm. another death in Iraq mm. and another comrade has, has fallen and mm. stuff like this and you're like, whoa, mm. this, is, this is getting fast. Did anyone put their arm around you who was a bit of an, like any of the older guys who said, you know, this kid's 16, he's um, green, he's, he's fresh out of, he's not gone to uni, he's fresh out of school. Did anyone say, right, we want to toughen him up but we don't want to, you know, break him in half basically? No, no, everyone's treated the same I think you've got in, in in sections which are in the army you've got natural leaders mm. like everywhere you, mm. you put a room of a hundred people there will be natural leaders in there people mm. that show that level of initiative mm. higher than everybody else and, and they don't realise they're doing it but they um, are but yeah. they are 100% yeah. Yeah. natural born leaders and uh those people stand out and I, over the course of the 12 weeks I started to realise who they were and that was who I without without gravitate towards I, them I'd gravitate yeah. towards them yeah. because I was so young and I've, I realised I was actually becoming very good at what I was doing mm. like things like rifle drills were mm. like faster than the, like, a lot of mm. other people and all these mm. things were like wow I'm, I'm actually am I quite good at this and mm. I just gravitated towards those people so in a way yes but mm. not in the not in the physical or emotional way mm. of, of, of like are you alright yeah. it, everyone's in it the same mm. thing mm. Are you are you couldn't even tell people's ages in mm. that's how weird it was oh okay so it's kind of like subconsciously you were gravitating yeah, yeah. yeah you just it was it was I had no idea I was doing it I just naturally I wasn't quite a leader then of course you're 16 I mean 16. very few 16 year olds are leaders however but... it, it, it was my 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 way of thinking then mm. must have been like the growth of it mm. and I did just gravitate towards it naturally mm. so you got through your basic training and then you're now ready to be deployed mm. in Iraq well, so you go to a phase 2 oh ok so yeah, phase 2 yeah, let's talk yeah. about phase so, 2 so then part, yeah the, um, which I was like reconnaissance so I was armoured based vehicle um, so you go to Bovenden which is a big tank museum down there mm. it's where all the Royal Armour Corps train mm. um, and you go for for another period of training uh, 
and you learn to drive uh, you learn to drive get your driving license if you've not got it mm. and then you go through the gunnery course if you're selected and so on and um, but, but that was when my granddad died so mm. my granddad died in phase two training I was very lucky to go away mm. and then I had like my 17th birthday there so keep in mind I still wasn't old enough to go on tour mm. and um, and then the the evolution of like the drinking ethos in the army mm. comes in because people are a little bit older and they can and not feel like you're taking advantage of as much yeah, as you're giving you a beer and yeah, all that sort of stuff yeah and the thing for me is that because I wasn't 18 I wasn't able to go out with those guys although we used to sneak out mm. and just get just get very 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 carefully mm. get the odd night out in Weymouth mm. at 17 and then they introduced these ID cards that mm. said I'm under 18 yeah. and took away your army ID card so that was out of the question So because you have to have it to come to camp but yeah and, um, that, that I, I was there a little bit longer because I hadn't turned 18 mm. my regiment were just getting ready to deploy to Iraq Their fir- the, the first time I knew about them going they'd been before mm. um, and I actually missed out on that tour because mm. of my age mm. at that back end you have to be 18 yeah, yeah 100% I missed out on that back end of the, the, the part of it so mm. then the deploy was later on mm for it when, when, when obviously I was old enough to go mm. um, and then I joined the unit that was it mm. pretty much joined the unit mm. and then went out went went out with the unit and, and got on with stuff that I was doing okay so you get to 18 now yeah you're ready to deploy yeah um, if you could you know just tell the listeners about how you were placed there and then the regiment you joined sort of those first those first few months maybe oh the <laughs> Everybody with regimental life uh, will experience those first. You, you, when you land, when you land, I was based in Germany, so I, mm. the whole process was even scarier mm. to a degree because one, I've got to go to an airport. Mm. Two, I've got to fly, and it's a military flight. So you're sat with, and you're in city clothes, but you're mm. sat with all these people, different ranks, mm. and you're, you're literally thinking, what the hell is going on? Uh, and then you land, and then it's like, uh, you go into Hona or mm. Garrison, mm-hmm. And I remember playing this day, my plane visit, my first visit. I'd never been to Germany, although I was born there. Mm. It's going to sound really stupid, but... <laughs> Nothing mate, stupid down, on this down, part, mate. Down the motorway, there was, there was uh, a sign for Altsfart, Altsfart. Mm. And then, like, 20 minutes on, there's another sign for Altsfart. And mm. this is, like, a bit of a funny thing that goes on with the army to Germany. And I was thinking, bloody hell, this place is huge, mm. right? This is the last eight exits of said Altsfart. Mm. Well, like, little did I know that it was that was exit basically. That's yeah, yeah. Was. <laughs> I had no clue. That's how nervous. So you think it was a town? I thought it was a town. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought it was a big town. I was like, wow. But I never actually knew that till quite a little bit later on because once I was in camp, and then um, you, you, you're in camp, you, you stopped in the parade square, you stood there in your kit, and the orderly sergeant major would stand there, and he'd, he'd be like, right, these are your rooms. You go to your room single bed itchy scratchy blankets there mm. and then I was in a room with another guy that had been there for a long time Mark Geldon we'd become really good friends um, and I looked in the room and I was like wow this guy's got like a double bed of like all his stuff and then that's mine I was like wow <laughs> this is a build up this is but no one really talks to you okay not really they'd be like You're, how you doing but it's not it's sort not, of in the zone people yeah, are focused so clicky yeah. clicky it's, mm. it's when you're new you're new mm. but it's not in a bad way it's like it's mm. a process and I, I believe that that process should be like that because mm. it's, it's levels you it levels yeah, you all of a sudden yeah. it goes wow I am at the bottom 
and that's where I belong because mm. it's 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 actually same as a labour makes a cup of teas and stuff like that. Mm. That's just how it is. Just make mm. the tea, moan mm. about it, mm. all right? If you want, but don't moan about it to people. It's, mm. I've got I'm there now, and that's the case of me working up. So you have loads of introductions and you go over a couple of months and then you get welcomed into the regiment and uh, it's, it just stays what actually goes on just stays secret inside mm, the regiment. of course of course it goes I wouldn't on. press but you on that either it's a, it's, it's a whole sort of ceremony yeah and uh, yeah it involves drinking a drink it's got lots of different things in it yeah and, uh, like, involves, much like university yeah, as well yeah, initiation yeah, yeah and uh, involves like uh, I mean in mine I, it's, in mine I, I threw up in the bucket and then <laughs> Drunk the sick. Oh my god! I, and I thought it was all about reputation. I was like, if yeah. I drink that sick, like, they're gonna love me. I just made myself more sick. It's but, weird how you think like that. I mean, yeah, that's that's almost maybe an example of toxic masculinity right there. If you think yeah, it's it, yeah, a huge pressure. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're walking into the you're walking into a, a pack. Mm. You know, You've you know, got to survive. An initiation. Yeah, yeah even yeah. in the wild, people don't realise it. But there's that you have to stand your ground mm. to show it. Mm. You know, people. You know, it happens in the animal kingdom. Mm. Like you've got to stand your ground. Mm. So if you don't, you you become. And it's it's nothing in a bad thing. It's it's the camaraderie build up. Like mm. there's nothing going on in there that's that's criminal. There's nothing going on in there that's bad. No one's mistreated. It's just the build up of that camaraderie. Mm. It's that because because you need that trust. You need that. Yeah. Mm. And it, it, like I said, there's nothing bad about it. And after everyone comes up to you like that's amazing. Yeah. Blah blah blah. Get you to a drink. Go and change your clothes. Mm. It's, it, it, it is and and it should be part of it. Like mm. that that kind of process. It, a lot of people look on the outside and go, "Oh my god, you have to drink a drink that had like a fag bite in it." It's mm. like, oh, you know. I've heard of a lot worse in, in mm. university. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I can I can tell you things a lot worse not, at university. It's not, it's not against human rights. It's not against anything <laughs> bad. It's, it, it, I genuinely believe that that's like the core foundation. That initial process of having a new in garrison drink. Mm. That's where where it all begins. Mm. So yeah, from the very few people that I do know who have served in the military or sort of in the navy or the, yeah. or the RAF, you know, the, this camaraderie is the is the crux of what they talk about. It's yeah, the thing it. that defines them. It's living. It's fighting alongside people that become your friends. They they become your your brothers in arms, which sometimes is the only thing that really gets them through it when they're on tour. Yeah, massively. Um, just talk to me a bit about, you know, a few of your favourite squad mates maybe and, and then some stories about your time when you were on tour together. Oh, um, do you know, everyone's got their own different personality and, and so on and when you change squads you go different groups. When I, when I went out to Iraq the first time it was, it was, it was actually the wind down of the uh, certain places in Iraq. It mm. was the, the, the draw out basically mm. and, um, we were based down at a port, so the com- the the group camaraderie w- was really important there mm. because she was quite secluded and it was a really weird environment. We was doing port security, there wasn't really much going on there. Mm. A couple of incidents, literally a couple of incidents happened. Mm. I, it was all about trying to sneak away and get a suntan at some points. <laughs> and, but they had a group of people, is it? This guy um, we're integrated with, uh, and everyone's got bold characters and. There's a guy called Biggie who was, he's out in Texas now. I still talk to him. We all got a big reunion at Christmas for my mate's wedding, which she's going to be a carnage. He's not going to be married for long. I don't think she knows what she let herself in for. Um, and then uh, what, <clears throat> outside, one of the one of the key mates, a guy called Rob Farkins, who's, who's actually a professional footballer now. Uh, he's still attached with the army, and 
Um, it was, we, we all had our quite bold confidence characters mm, the extroverts and yeah, 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 yeah the alpha males yeah, yeah yeah we all and then it, we'd all be the ones that would piss about joke about but mm. <clears throat> cut the line work gets done mm. and it gets done properly we 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 were very very good at that doing switch. certain things mm. that mm. switch and, mm. and we was doing things that you know it, the job would get done mm. there's a few of us there's a few of us in that group and then through the regiment you just transition through mm. groups but it's a very small regiment so most people know each other mm. let's talk about that that first skirmish or or, or bit of action as, as you'd probably say once when you experienced it in Iraq you know how did it happen who were you with and what was your sort of mission at the time well, like I said, the, the, I would love to st- sit there and come up with these crazy war stories about the Iraq War, but it wasn't, it wasn't like that for oh, me. Okay. It wasn't, there was a couple of things that went on, mm. but the guys that done the original Iraq invasion, invasion at the start, as, as they called it, like, the, the, the feet that like, I follow after them, I got that much respect for them because... Mm. That was hell for those mm. guys, mm. and I wasn't a part of that. Oh, okay. That that initial thing is the back end. Mm. So all of us, what we were doing is we were doing a mitigation. So we was training the Iraqi forces. Okay. And to be fair, they're scarier than, than the bloody <laughs> Taliban. <laughs> Taking them for gun uh, ranges and shooting mm. ranges mm. and it's scary stuff. Mm. They haven't got a clue, mm. um, and that was kind of our job. Um, but we we had a couple of we had a couple of incidents um, where we come across IEDs. Um, we came across uh, an IED. We we had a we, had, we was on Saffron Hill, which is a mm. big rebro. It's a big telecom, and we took over it. It's a really key feature at that part of Iraq, mm. and we were there. So basically, it's about eight people in the middle of Iraq sat on this hill mm. so first of all if anyone's got any idea of how military world works and battle strategies mm. you're sat on a hill mm. um, and now we have things like mortars and stuff mm. which is great um, you're a target and you can't go anywhere mm. uh, there's so only yeah, eight of you um, at the time was it at a time and there was yeah. four Americans yeah. mm. which were characters as well so yeah we, we had a couple of like pop shots we called mm. them pop shots mm. um, firing our way nothing, nothing crazy nothing mm. crazy um, but we come across like a couple of IEDs um, when we were going back back out sometimes we'd drive there sometimes we'd fly by Chinook mm. uh, uh, whichever way um, and then back at Basra up um, up that direction there was there was a lot of IDF attacks in direct fire oh, who were, oh in direct fire and okay. that was the big threat for us there mm. because you've got a huge cap that was big so if we went there and you've got keep people that are on there permanently mm. that's a big target so mm. there's a lot of indirect fire that was coming from in. different angles as well oh, it's all over yeah. Yeah. yeah so you'd hear the the siren would go and you'd have to put your helmet on put your bed put your put your um, body armour on and they'd go off a lot and mm. you'd get IDF mm. like that was quite frequent mm. that, that, that part um, there wasn't much gun battling going on at all if not any and then you'd hide under a bed which was which on some of the rooms were brass but then in as they built up the, the compound they were all concrete right so you're so well protected well, I mean if, if a big rocket's going to hit you it's going to hit you but mm. that's to prevent any collateral as well so mm. you we call them coffins you, you sleep inside like a God, coffin God, it's like, that's, a, it's that's like a, a brick trying to imagine what that must be yeah, like it's a really yeah. setup. you kind of walk in and they've got brick round so you, you are well protected don't get me wrong if something's going to land on top of your eyes mm. it's going to hurt mm. 
but you kind of like sleep under these coffins mm. sort of thing it's the best you sleep and it's like a concrete thing above it yeah. it's quite yeah <laughs> it's supposed to feel like you're buried yeah. alive almost in a little bit it's yeah massively yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and then you know in the middle of the night the you know they pretty much attack at night time I mean the sirens would go off and you'd be putting your helmet on and so on so that was kind of my first part of war but it wasn't like a it wasn't like the films it wasn't those big no, big not, massive firefights no, yeah not for me not not compared to the guy the guys before I literally take my hat off to them mm. like that those guys are, are are were sorry in the thick of it mm. you know, it's not a nice place to go and have a battle in Iraq mm. like mm. you know and so on so yeah I never experienced that mm. part of it your next tour after Iraq was in Afghanistan, if that's correct. That's correct, yeah. yeah. Um, so essentially you went from serving in one hugely dangerous part of the world, although by your experiences it wasn't perhaps what some might no, make out, no. um, to possibly the most dangerous part of the world yeah. at that point, yeah. Um, yeah. especially as you were placed at one point in Helmand province, is that correct? Yeah, we spent yeah. most of our tour in Yeah. There. So tell me a bit about, you know, First of all, the Dean we meet at this point, has he been toughened up? Is he kind of learning more about himself and learning about the people that he's with? And also, you know, is he glad just to have survived that first tour in Iraq or is he just itching to get more action? Who's that sort of person we meet there? Um, it was quite weird because there was, there was a couple of years between that where we did deploy a lot of exercises, Canada and all mm. these different places. But I was actually attached to the Marines for that. So the whole process is when we was in Canada, a few of us got sent to the Marines, and we they're yeah, different. They're okay. a different breed, aren't they? As they're well, a bloody breed hell, of people. And I personally was I I I I'd been on uh, at that time. I had, before then I'd gone on my UK SF uh, all arms course, mm-hmm. UK Special Forces all arms course. Mm-hmm. My goal then, and n- nobody know there is a very select few of people that know what I'm about to say. Mm. Um, so my goal was to follow my granddad's footsteps and I wanted to go on selection in the SAS. Mm-hmm. That is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 9th 12th Royal Lancers at the time were reconnaissance regiments, so they're non-infantry. Mm. So to be able to be on the same level song sheet as the powers and everybody else. Mm. A different have... breed as well, powers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah not good people, they are. Like, <laughs> bloody amazing blokes. All the ones I've met, amazing mm. blokes. But yeah, The mindset, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah, just a different level. Breed, yeah, you breed, you're bred for it. Yeah, and I started to feel like I was starting to get that part. So I basically, they do a all-armed special forces infantry course. It is not selection. Okay. Um, you go away and they test your level of infantry skills. Mm. Um, and there is special forces there and they are watching it and they are watching you like hawks mm. and you go out on a final exercise they te- they test you it, it was hard mm. like under, just before then I'd done my P company as well which is which is parachute selection I never I never went straight from there onto jumps but that's a beast and that's the Paris mm. mini all arms course mm. so I started to get this kind of like give me that Mm. got to the end of it and you you go and sit down in a boardroom and it's, it's, it's tough toughest exercises that I've ever done in my life and I sat down and I was still young like, I'm still young then and there's four there's four people in there and um, all different regiments mm. and some very 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 well established elite soldiers and I was like oh god they're going to say yeah they're going to mm. say no mm. and the main, the main guy in there was like, look, 
you've passed everything that we'd want you to. Like your your skills are are amazingly, mm. you know. Uh, Lily is amazing I'm making it hard <laughs> because they're not going to say that are they they're proficient yeah, 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 yeah you're yeah. very very well trained at mm. that um, we won't we don't want you to go on selection until you've done a more physical uh, tour mm-hmm. so something like Helmand so I kind of walked out and was like whoa I've basically kind of got you smashed it yeah Yeah. I've got the green light I didn't expect it either because I was on that course with some elite soldiers phenomenal soldiers like guys that you look and I'm thinking shit I'm I'm actually am I part of this Mm, now mm. anyway that then the brigade reconnaissance force come about and we'd done a bit of a mitigation like with the marines and all of a sudden I was out of my depth again and I'll never forget I went on an exercise with them in America and it was fucking amazing like (laughs) we flew off helicopters onto ships and we went in boats up the rivers and it was just like, I was like, this is what, why am I stuck in a tank? Like a superman. Yeah, yeah, When I am literally, I've just, I've just gone, and this is, I've just gone out of HMS Osprey Osprey, on a helipad listening to Top Gun. No bullshit, that actually (laughs) happened. We just said it as a joke. With all my off, like, night stuff on, it was Mm. like, I get excited about it now. Mm. Um, but, felt, felt like the movies oh in, it was hardcore yeah, like yeah. all the night vision and we, were, we were about to go and assault the Americans and we'd, but basically what happened on the exercise was I wasn't very well equipped with water situations okay. and um, yeah the, on the, we went on the boat and it was for a long time it was on the, the, the smaller boats and we'd done all the training drills and um, I remember I was just like I was going along and I was thinking, fucking hell, I don't, like, it wasn't seasick, but I was like, what? A bit uneasy. Yeah, yeah, I was really uneasy and I was kind of like, like this and then I was like, Jesus, am I like, like falling asleep? Falling or out? Or? It was really weird and mm. I just remember like, every time I hit a bump, I was like, oh, and then it, I was all right after a while, it just took me a while to adjust. But anyway, got out, got in war and you have everything keep in mind we're in up to fucking our, our just above our waist in this swamp mm. and uh, I I got given the radio job which is a shit job because <laughs> I was in the army blatantly was just mm. a shit job um, but we got to the thing and the radio wouldn't work and I'm not very good with comms like mm. I just can't figure it out and I have no interest in it in mm. terms of learning the, the other courses mm. But I could just never work it out. My brain just didn't figure it out. Um, and you had to do all these different codes and stuff like this, and mm. these different routes to get somewhere. It just weren't working. I remember the guy, Paul, I was with, and I'm thinking, their first impression of me is shit. Mm. Like, I can't take the boat, because <laughs> so that's me <laughs> fucked on that. Um, and then what we realised I've done is I actually got the radio wet. Oh, God. Right? So my canoe bag, which is a water bag, waterproof bag, um, it just I just hadn't done it up properly. Mm. Um, we done the exercise. Exercise was a success. It was wicked. Cleared all these things. Flew back out. Amazing. And I took the radio to this this marine guy. And I was like, it's not working. And this guy is, is the head of comms. He was massive yeah, unit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, it's not working. And he 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 lifts the radio up. And did water just come out? And just this water come out, and I just went, <laughs> oh. And he looked and was like, oh. And that was my fir- that was one of the first impressions mm. of forgot. And I was like, I'm not this bad. Mm. I'm actually good at my job. <laughs> I've just 
got very You just bad. made a mistake. I've just, yeah. I've just got a bag really, really, really wet. That was mm. my error. So everything after them. But we flew out with them. So we went and done more training with them and then we flew out and um, Brigade Reconnaissance Force, uh, you're the forefront of a lot of the operations that are going on. So not the front line, but near near to that? No, you're further. Further than the front you're line. You're further. Okay. So our, our job was to basically find, seek information by any means, may it be reconnaissance work by firefight. Um, and our whole objective of that tour was to disrupt the Taliban mm. by whatever way we could mm. whatever way we could that was our goal we, we were to cause the Taliban as much issues as possible mm. and we pretty much got full reign of Afghanistan so we'd land in Chinooks we'd land in helicopters we'd land in we'd drive in we'd do reconnaissance we've, we found all these like underground caves where there are caches of weapons and was having firefights and it was just it was just a world it was a world party. away from Iraq as well. Well, world away and I was like, this is amazing. Um, this this is like we're going out and like we're in the green zone. Like we landed in the Chinooks and we're getting shot at and all these things are going on. And um, we're doing the compound clearances and we've got Apaches flying over our head and you're seeing like you're fighting enemy like enemy and like, all the other stuff and it's like whoa. Um, and that was a six, seven month tour and I got, we, my team, I was basically, I, I moved up to a, to, to a second in command on my team because mm. our commander decided to, um, uh, he, he made a decision to go somewhere else in the unit basically, which is fine, totally cool. So two IC stepped up and I stepped in place and I was like, shh. Extra responsibility. Yeah, massively. Yeah. And um, I'll never forget one time, Callum Needham, Point Man, and this was when ours was a 2IC, and we went out onto, we went out to a ground and we was like, right, take your team, and they put Overwatch, and we walked out, it was to take a picture of a crossing point, mm. and uh, went to go and take pictures, and as we walked out, we got opened up on, and just, oh, like, we just, this huge wave of, bullets come firing and I remember looking at the point man because we was in a certain formation and he fell backwards mm. and my first thing was he's been shot so we levered all this massive firepower down I had an underslung grenade and just fired in the general direction of where the guns were we could see that we could it's see the little flashes little yeah. flashes I fired those out I reloaded fired those out just to try and suppress mm. and we had rapid fire and we had some fire on the other side and it suppressed it that was all in a split second but what 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 had gone on is I had I had said through my PRR to my guy the man down mm. and when I ran over C Callum and I went to go over to to to, to pull it pull him out. He was laughing, like looking up. There's a young guy, he's 18, 19. He's laughing. And he's like, I fucking tripped over. What are the odds? <laughs> and the odds. There's anything you can do at that point, can't you? It's that weird, like yeah. you're in a life and death situation. He's just laughing yeah, his head he's off. He's just yeah. laughing his head off. And I remember like, and I was like, he's fine, he's fine, he's fine. Because luckily that didn't go up 
again, like mm. that just went through our radio, like mm. our, our headsets. It didn't go to higher because when you say man down, everybody's called back at camp and yeah, the whole yeah, place yeah. is like. And then it was like, and I was like, it's K, it's K, it's K. And I remember grabbing him. I was like, you fucking prick. like, I, I just got this almighty anger. And I was like, why didn't you say it? Like, all these things. Because mm. it was like, my, I thought he'd been shot. Mm. Or worse. And I basically yeah. picked him up. And then we, we, we sort of, we, we came back and got him safe. And I lost my, I lost, look, I lost my rag again. Mm. When we sat, we sat in safe ground. And um, that was the same day, uh, same operation as when we, we lost, uh, we lost, uh, it was the, it was the, it was the operation before where we, we lost um, somebody very mm. close to our unit in our unit, mm. Paul Watkins, on another operation. We wasn't a part of it, but mm. that sort of that came down. We was we was we got sent to a patrol base in the middle of Helmand. It was a patrol base, which was a compound taken over. We were there in the middle of all these other compounds, and we were sent down there because mm. they took a massive casualty mm. hit. And we were there to go and bolster up the numbers and go and do some reconnaissance work. Mm. And that was when we found out about. Yeah, grief, grief is something that we I try and talk a lot about on this pod, Dean, and and it's it's hugely complex. It's personal. I always yeah. I almost say a lot that it's almost probably more stigmatized than mental health in many ways. Oh, massive. Um, yeah. But you know, in war, when you lose someone on the battlefield, you don't really have too much much time to grieve, do you? You know what effect does that have on your emotional state, your, your well-being and, and, and the mental health of you and your fellow squad mates when either you've seen someone, you know, go down next to you or you've heard about it, like in the case yeah. of Paul Watkins? I don't know, my first, my first, my first, um, like, experience with death on a battlefield was actually, was, was, was enemy. Mm. That was, that was my first, first, first pot. It was after a compound clearance mm. with, We'd um, as as a team and one of our teams had success, successfully um, killed the enemy, and that was my first kind of thing. And I, I was just like in my head, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Because mm. the whole situation building up to it, it was like we've got to pin these guys down. Mm. They've just literally like been fired, fired at us, mm. and we've got to detain them. Mm. Little did know when they went into the room, the, the the head team that went into the room, he was still armed, mm. and he actually let a grenade off. He blew himself up as well. Mm. Um, it was like wow. And part of me was like, it's really sinister. And part of me was like, that's cool as fuck. Mm. But then it was, it was like, I was dead. It was very weird. But there was mm. no like, there wasn't. This is, it wasn't like a remorse for it at first. Because I like, guess you can't have too much remorse because it's yeah, your job. It's our know? job. I yeah. was like, fucking yes, sort yeah. of thing. Like there wasn't no remorse at all. Did that change you at that point? Um, I think later on that changed me. That 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 situation, that first situation, because there's there's so many key events in my life that mm. happened on that tour. The the first time when I'd ever seen um, an enemy of in like in my sights, mm. like an armed person in the in my sights, mm. that will always stay in my mind. And then that just always stayed. After that, we, we there was lots of there was lots mm. of mm. there was lots of situations like that. But yeah. Um, but then when we were very, 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 very fortunate on our tour that the 100 people in the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, we only took a few casualties. Mm. We, we took no, um, no deaths, which is great. 
That's unbelievable um, for Hellman Province. You know, we was a, a solid unit. Mm. You know, we we were very lucky to not have to patrol in the in the areas where there was IEDs, IEDs everywhere. We landed yeah. in the middle of them. Mm. So we landed inside the so the eye of the state, storm almost. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember once we landed in a we landed just outside of a mini Taliban threshold, and they were all still asleep. And we cleared the compound. Like we landed in a helicopter, and they were still asleep. <laughs> Unheard like, of, really, isn't it's, it? It's think? kind of yeah. like we, you know, we we had like we had a we had a distance to come in and, and go, but the distance from where the helicopter landed, you mm. still heard it. Mm. But we so um, but. Yeah, that we only took a few casualties. Like, we an interpreter was shot quite badly. Um, it's what it, it, you know. It's very, very unlucky how he got shot. Um, possibly a ricochet or just just a, it was just a rat, it was like a spray a spray of uh, shots. And then Reggie, who was a engineer marine, he was shot in the ass. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about that, but well, we laughed because he was. God, he's a gobshite. It's a gobshite, yeah. yeah. When you get shot in the house, like, well, it's quite funny. <laughs> like, um, I wasn't there on that operation. I just remember when it came back and it was like, it was like, oh, God, like, Reggie got shot and he got shot in the arse and the, the Americans, Pedro, which are the, uh, which are the emergency response unit, had to come get him and he got flown out and all these sort of things. So, yeah, that, that kind of part was just, you know, the conflict. A lot of, a lot of the death that, I seen was was enemy 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 yeah. yeah and um that that was my experience when I was on tour we 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 the night twelve four Lancers lost Paul Watkins mm. South African guy and uh when we heard about it they basically go on lockdown like so if there's a death uh, a lot of communications are stopped so no one can talk outside like we can still talk to each other but the phones go off mm. and the internet goes down mainly just to keep the privacy of, mm. you know, we don't want the family to be informed mm. before before because you know the last thing you'd want is somebody Some on social on media or facebook and then it gets yeah. to them yeah. and it's like wow you know what, what is... people don't really think about that do they when they think about you put on rip yeah. somebody mm. and then the parents haven't even been told so that mm. that you got a lockdown which it's is, the process it's the yeah. process so yeah. but we was inside a compound at the time we was we was bolstering up these numbers so we was like in the thick of operations and this was kind of like these are sort of operations you wake up in the morning and there's a fucking gun battle going on above your head you're like yeah. Here we go again. Back up to the top. Mm. Snipers out. Fucking javelin missiles out. And then so on. And then you'd go out and clear it. Mm. So we were still busy. And I remember we got called into the ops room. And whenever someone dies, you just... You wish it's not someone you know. Mm. But that's the thought process of it. You're mm. like, please... And this is for me. It's like, first of all, you don't want anyone to die. But mm. you can't help but be like please don't be one of our boys, mm. like one of our regiment. And it's, mm. it sounds weird, but that's the emotional connection you've got mm. with those that's guys. That's natural, is it? Yeah, it's, it's natural. natural. Like, in your head, like, please don't be one of our guys. Please don't be one of our guys. And then we got told, and it was like, ninth, it was ninth, 12 for all answers. We've got a small regiment. Mm. You're going to know who that is. Mm. So I was sitting in the ops room, and it was just like, fuck. We hadn't been told who it was. Got out, carried on with work. Just mm. like, fuck, shit. You know, all these things, who's it going to be, who's it going to be? And then we got called back into the option later on in the day. And uh, it, it, it was uh, Paul Watkins. It was like, whoa. And then that was 
kind of it. Mm. Shit, that's hard. And mm. some of the guys did take it more, like take it differently. I remember just sitting on my camp cot and I like, and I was, I was just sitting. I was cleaning my rifle and I was like, wow, like that's quite, like it's quite, a, it's quite a weird emotion because mm. you're not, you're not there. You haven't seen it, and actually, it doesn't seem real. Mm. because somebody's just told you it mm. so you kind of go in your head that he's coming back at some point real. yeah, yeah or like he's just going to pop in like, yeah. yeah I think that helps you kind of like no I wasn't immediately close friends with Paul Watkin like we didn't associate with each other you know other than if we was in the bar and mm. stuff like that like mm. you know I but yeah we just kind of like there's a job to do mm. go out mm. just go straight back out on operations mm. and that was it and then when we went back to the main, main, main uh, camp, I mean, that's when the realization set in for a couple of people because you you come out of this heavy conflict and you sit there. And I think a lot of people were like, "Yeah, that's that's bad," because mm. then you find out how things happened. Mm. Then you realize that a lot of people don't realize is when somebody is killed, there's a lot of damage around. Mm. So actually, that was uh, a rogue Taliban that. Mm. Killed him, mm. turned around and shot him, and shot a few others of our guys. So mm. there was injuries as well, mm. quite quite bad ones. Mm. People had to be casualties, and so the picture unfolds. And then when you're in your head, you start building the picture. And I think that's when the realization sets in. And you're like, that's how it happened. Mm. You just carry on. Mm. That's it. Yeah, you do, you do. When you when you were out there, did you ever feel? scared in at any moment or was was fear something that you had to you know completely block out otherwise you wouldn't be able to sort of do your duty no I bricked it I was like <laughs> oh, I remember like I, I think I actually shit myself at one point um, no you well, the first post like you've always got fear's there for a reason mm. alright so I've always I've always gone by this concept I've got it tattooed on me that, that fear is a liar and fear does lie to us and we need to we, we should utilise it mm. and what it does is it sends us all of these mixed things mm. and that's what I mean by it's lies so once you start to utilise it you, you start to become more hard you become battle hardened mm. but yeah the first ever time again it's like a key point I remember the first time I got shot at and uh, but directly first, like they were first, aiming at yeah, you yeah, first, yeah. yeah first time on the ground literally been on the ground about an hour go into a compound, keep in mind you've not homed into the green zone, you're yeah. this, you, at the end of your tour, it's like second nature, you mm. know exactly what's going on, but mm. when you're there, you're like, humid, hot, it's mm. like four Adjustment, degrees. get your bearings, yeah. yeah. And then also I remember, I was on top of a roof, just to give cover, and all of a sudden I just heard this, what everyone says to you, there's a crack mm. and a thump. Mm. Um, and the noise, if one part of that noise is louder, it tends to be how close it is to your head. Mm, mm. And um, it was, uh, it hit just above on the compound. And I remember just all the, I remember looking like, oh, fuck. Just like and it cracked just, above your yeah, head. Yeah. And, then, and then what it was is in the distance, and I can even tell you the distances, it was about 350 metres away. I remember looking and I was like, you could see them running across the, the bun mm. line mm. With, with weapons mm. and running across and going to their different positions. And we just opened up. And uh, yeah, I I was scared, senseless then. Mm. Literally like, 
that, that period of time. But then as they carry on, they go on, they go on. So normalise it, yeah. But you normalise that, mm. that emotion, you learn to deal with it. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, if you don't have fear, you know, the way it talks just and communicates us is the part where I say, it's, you know, that's the bit that, that kind of lies to us. Mm. It tells us to do things that we, we, we shouldn't actually do. Mm. We should act on them in separate ways. You know, a fighter will go into a fight, into a ring, if he hasn't got fear, then he's going to get punched in the face. Fear mm. is what stops him from being punched mm. in the face. We just don't see it. Mm. Um, one thing that, that many, many soldiers from all sorts of backgrounds um, often develop as, as a result of their experiences of war um, is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Yeah. And it's something that I, I've actually, I actually live with as well because of being bullied at school. Yeah. Um, so you were diagnosed with, with PTSD in 2018. Um, we're going to talk about this a bit more on, on the next section, but just if you could quickly, just talk to me about your experiences of this condition, you know, how and why it developed, obviously, we can yeah. talk about the obvious reasons and sort of the impact it has on it had on you then and sort of in your day-to-day li- day life now. Yeah, um, I never knew I had it, really. Um, like telltale signs. When, when, you, when you think, a lot of people, it's just because they don't understand. When you think PTSD with the armed forces, you think stop, flashbacks, all happening, stops. That's what everybody thinks. Um, and That's how it's portrayed. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah p- the, what these are, these are categories. Mm. Like PTSD is a category, depression is a category, it's an umbrella, and there is loads of different types within there. It's and a spectrum. It's a spectrum. Yeah. And then within inside that spectrum, there's, there's, there's areas we don't know yet. Mm. Our brains are so complex, we don't even understand them ourselves. Mm. Um, so everyone's different, but for me, I, I started to get a bit of an anxiety level with stuff and then I started to get dreams and I just thought it was normal mm. I was, and that's what I was and never told anything and then I had a couple of um, like episodes where I remember I was I was out for a run in this same situation a couple of times in the summer quite warm triggers helicopter goes over probably going to bloody Silverstone nothing mm. bad mm. And I was out for a run and I had my backpack on because I was working for a company at the time, which was a military-based fitness company. Mm. And I was doing a Bergen run and um, just an overwhelming feeling happened. And it was like my body just got really hot and the helicopter just stayed distinctive in my head and I zoned to the noise and because I had the Bergen on and I was at Dunstable Downs and it, it's by far no helmet but there's a lot of built like uh, built foliage areas mm. and, and all of a sudden I started it, like everything in heightened and I was remember looking at like hedge lines, band lines, working mm. in and then all of a sudden I started to get this just constant replay in my head and um it just turned into a big panic attack. And I was just like, fuck. So it wasn't so much like I'd seen this visual thing, just a situation in my head went over, 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 mm. over, over, mm. over, over. And it just kept going round and round. Mm. And still then I didn't know it was PTSD. Um, and then as it, as it progressed through, that was when it, it, people started to recognise stuff. But I, ne- I never did. I thought it was normal. Mm. Um, something happened in a shop with my ex-girlfriend. And so I remember the trolley fell over. And I, hit, I, I actually... Well, you hit the deck? Up. Yeah, not for... Yeah. I actually went down like that. And, mm. But then my, 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 my girlfriend at the time would always say that it was a different version of me. 
Mm. Even like my face features, yeah. yeah. My eyes would change. My feet, the way I'd act, like mm. everything would change for mm. however period of time. So yeah, that was when it started. Mm. It's really important, I think, to point out that not not only do sometimes soldiers um, lose their friends while serving in war, but yeah. they also might lose them when they leave the battlefield too. Um, you know, according yeah. to the Ministry of Defence's national statistics published about suicide rates um, amongst UK armed forces, you know, in the 20-year period between 1999 and 2018, 310 suicides occurred amongst um, personnel, so 292 females and, and 18 females. Now, whilst some of the listeners might be thinking that doesn't seem too high compared with the overall population. <laughs> you know, then we share the view that, that one life taken is too much. Do you share that view as well, Dean? 100%. Mm. I think, uh, I, not even just with armed forces, the, uh, the, 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 I always say with suicide is, and it, as much as this is like an obvious statement, there is a reason. Mm. And... There's, there is, with that individual, there is a problem going on with them. Mm. And it may be different, but that can be solved. Mm. We know with guys it's about talking out. And it is hard. I went through six years of my life not mm. doing it. But no, no, nobody, nobody should be in a, in, should, should be in a position where they feel like they have to take their life for whatever reason. Mm. I'm so passionate about it. Like, if... It, no, nobody should go through a battle on their own. Mm. Like, nobody should have the anxiety of not being to go out. However, we do, and that's the thing. We do have that, and we're still learning to 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 combat that and, mm. and work with it. And we've we've got to accept that we need to do these things with people. Um, hundred percent. No, no, sir. No serviceman should be killed on tour by by being blown up by an AD, mm. by being shot. No one should, mm. you know, unless you're dying of old age mm. um, and, and people for other reasons, mm. which, you know, down to, down to them and so on. People's perception if somebody does something wrong in life, whichever it is. And, but nobody really should. Mm. When it comes to the suicide, there's a process. And for me, I think that, no, no life should be lost to suicide. Mm. I'm strong about that. Mm. Have you seen or experienced any of your other friends who have left the army develop similar mental health conditions, go through struggles that have been related to, to war, um, or have any of them even tragically become a statistic as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last year, uh, Matthew Shalito, he took his life. I know you write your uh, post about that, I think, yeah, as well. Yeah, he took yeah. his life. Really... Not to take away the light from his funeral, but it was it was brutal for me for loads of different reasons. Mm. We we're very very similar ages. We've got mm. daughters the same, and yeah, it was quite a strange situation. It was, but it was a turning point. And then a month later, another jet, another guy from the regiment. I didn't know him as much. He'd left before me. He took his life, and yeah, over the last sort of couple of years, there's mm. been there's been a a, a few. Mm. We kind of talk about it like it's a road traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we actually talk about it quite normally, mm. really. Now, to be fair, we're more aware now that's going on. Um, and uh, my close friend at the minute, he's just coming out of the army. He's he's suffering, mm. and um, I'm really honest, open book. I'm actually waiting for a call to to, to say that he's done something mm. like. Obviously, I don't want that to happen. You've got that apprehension. Watching, but yeah. yeah, massively, because yeah. It's, 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 he's, he's gone through hell. Mm. Um, 
you know, and he's got, the thing for him is he's got help and he's been to hospitals and mm. he's getting these things, but it's kind of like, every now and again, it's like, just, just hold on. Just mm. hold on for a couple more days to mm. him. I'm like, just grip on, like, and just hold on to what's going on right now. And mm. all these sort of things. But I feel like I'm able to coach him when he, when he mm. is going through these phases. Mm. So, what more do you think needs to be done to help former servicemen and women with, with their mental health, you know, before they enlist, during it and after they leave? I know that's a big question, but yeah, what are the things God, that you've where, seen? Where do you start? I mean, mental health at a young age, turning adolescence, is there's a misconception of it because it can be all sorts of types of things. Mm. Like somebody that shows signs on the spectrum of being autistic could actually mm. be showing signs of anxiety. Mm. Like it could be an anxiety disorder, mm. not not autism, mm. and you know, and loosely part of reading stuff like that. So, in terms of it, you're, you're one of the things is you want people to talk, but you're asking someone to talk. Mm. Like that's one of the biggest issues that we've got right now for uh, amongst amongst a uh, collective group. Screening sc- a, a screening process of some sort. Mm. Um, again, what is it going to uncover? Mm. I remember sitting in the hospital and telling them that I didn't want to commit suicide no more, just to get out of the hospital. Really? Because I knew in my head that, and I knew if the only reason why I was sectioned at that time was for suicide only. Mm. So if I say I don't want to commit suicide, I'm technically safe to them. And I was let out. You're, because you're, because they're under such pressure that they, if you're off that extreme end of the yeah, spectrum, yeah, then... Yeah. They just yeah. want to stop me from committing suicide, which is mm. great. Mm. Um, in terms of the army, when you're, when, you're, when you're in the army, they are doing a lot better now, 100%. But again, you're, you're asking people to talk about not only their emotions, men and women... Um, that they think is going to jeopardise their job. And their ability to, like, you know, if someone goes down, save them in the right position or maybe yeah. hold back because they're under fire. And you, it, do you know what? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, do I, do I personally think it's ever going to be resolved or there's ever going to be a process that... I, I actually don't, really, to a degree, because the, you can't tell what's going mm. on in someone's head. Mm. Like that, that's not to be, like, a dampener and say there isn't a solution, there's lots. Mm. But for me personally, is the biggest one is you're asking someone to talk. The only way, one of the only ways you know about somebody's mental health is if they open their mouth. Because people can say, you can have a bad day. Um, I'm feeling a bit sad, depressed. Mm. You're sad. Like, the, one of the only fundamental ways is, is this. Mm. So how does that be overcome? When you come out of the army, people come out for different reasons. The reason why I come out is very different to other people. And... I just want to get out. I just want to get out then. So mm. I was going to say everything. So the process, you're going to... I think what they're doing now is the build-up of it. Mm. Um, offering the support because that's all we can do, mm. really. It's a little bit like... It's, it's like vent mm. and raise awareness mm. and offer support because what what really in a nutshell other than doing that what can you do for a lot of people mm. because that's fundamentally mental health mm. and, and that's my personal opinion like that's what it is your mm. support and you're asking someone to talk mm. a lot of the time mm. um yeah so with the army i think what well, i think what they're doing is 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 trying to do that 
and, and that's how I think. I think I think they're doing it personally. Looking back on this experience and the, both the tours that you went through and this this massive part of your life, how do you view it now? Is it something that you wouldn't change for the world? Is 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 it something that you perhaps regret at times? You know, what what, what how do you look back on that experience? It's mixed emotions. Mm. Like when I was when I was through the worst part of my life and really ill, the um, I blamed the army. It was, it was literally I was, I didn't want anything to do with the army. I couldn't even watch a, a war film. Mm. It was just like the army. But um, on the flip side, and I said this to absolutely everyone, if somebody was to knock on your door now with two black bags and my kit and say, there is your ID card, you can join that right now, mm. I'd go. Mm. Like that. So it's like... It's a big juxtaposition, it's isn't it? Yeah, the spectrum yeah. yet again, massively. Mm. Um, I feel safe in the I know I feel safe in the army mm. I was I started at a young age I was institutionalised mm. it's what you are you're institutionalised mm. you know you are told what to do where to go what to wear and what to say mm. the only thing you've got to do really is wipe your ass mm. because there isn't really anything else you have to do so vulnerable out here so for that part of it because and I still feel vulnerable now I, I do not like civilian life I, mm. I don't like it I hate it mm. I really do so for me that would be the reason going back because I know I'd step back in the barracks and I'd be like it's home it's home yeah. Like, yeah. it's my home mm. um, and I think a lot of people will say that mm. if there's anyone listening who, who might be considering joining the British Army the Royal Marines the Navy etc whether it's, as in, if it's infantry or as a pilot or something like that you know, what advice would you give them before they made that decision? What advice would you give them whilst they're there? Anything that you can sort of, anything, tips or advice, basically? First of all, if you want to join the army, do it. Don't do it off of a whim, like off of a back end of something. Just mm. weigh up everything you've got. Mm. Um, go through the proper chains, go through the proper process. Make sure everything in your life is sorted before, mm. because it will come back and bite you in the ass. If you've got a family member that is that is really really ill, think about it. If mm. if if they if they're going to pass away, maybe let that process happen. Mm. Um, if somebody needs your support, you're not going to be able to go. Mm. Um, financially, don't join the army with financial issues. Mm. All right, because as soon as you get in the army as a young private, you're going to spend all your money on drink and mm. bloody girls and mm. or the other way around. I'm not saying mm. girls spread on boys, but mm. you know, as a guy, that's, mm. that's what mm. we we do. Mm. Um, while, while you're there I'm going to say talk to people but not, not about how you're how you're feeling necessarily because it's been years and years and years since we keep saying this like, I mean just communication mm. like build up relationships with people because at some point you may need to do it and that's a really important thing for me like I'm a huge believer of building relationships with people mm. time's the most valuable thing the second that that second hand moves you're not getting that back mm. and it's the it's the best investment in life mm. for kids every, everybody um, so mine would be build relations mm. and in whatever way a common interest mm. and build on from there it's, I'm not going to be I can't sit there and say you should talk about 
you, how you're feeling today. Like, oh, I'm feeling quite upset. Or I'm getting really anxious because the more that pressure goes on the person, the less they're going to do it. Just build mm. the relationship because at some point you'll be a lot more safer to do that. That conversation um, takes us nicely onto your own journey, uh, Dean. Um, so first of all, just chat to me about a little bit about um, post-military life. You know, you've obviously mentioned that it's it's a really difficult time for any former servicemen or women. Um, before you, when you were in the army, did you feel like you were developing this bipolar disorder that you've been very you've been very open about um, for quite some time? Um, and also, did you find it quite difficult adjusting to, you know, civilian life, finding a new job, and, and also dealing with all these horrific experiences you had gone through as well? Um, oh, no, I had no idea that... Uh, I had no idea before I joined the army when I was a kid about any sort of mental health. I didn't even know it existed. Mm. So, and thinking back, I... You know, doesn't register with me. Yeah, it didn't register with me at the time, did it? No, yeah, no, no. Yeah. Um, when I left, the transition itself, I was very, very fortunate that I... I walked straight into a job working for a, a fitness company, a local one, not a big established one. Mm. Um, and actually their support to me when I started to get ill was shocking. Not to put any business in repetition, but I was I was told that I was a ticking time bomb and I was basically Jesus let, I was I was let go. Um, but there was a load of incidents that built up to it. I got I got arrested um, on a night out. And it was bad. It was really bad. Mm. And uh, things like, a lot of things involved there. Um, could that have been... Every, it's easy with hindsight, isn't it? It's easy yeah. to go back and say that. It'll be, look, at the end of the day, I always say to people, if you're a dick when you drink, you're a dick when you drink. Mm. You know, It's not a mental health thing mm. unless you have addiction. Mm. But when you go out and drink and all of a sudden you want to take on the world, that's because you're a dick. Mm. So you can very easily blame it. Um, and then I started going in and out of jobs and just loads, loads, you, I could sit there and talk about everything that went on and, and wouldn't be able to, and relationships breaking down and so on. Um, and yeah, the transition was brutal, like mm. absolutely brutal, mm. ho- horrible. Well, the hardest challenge of my life is, mm. is transitioning over 100%. So you wrote an article for Vent last year um, about your own mental health journey, Dean, and in particular, the suicide attempt, which you were trying to deal with whilst kind of adjusting to your new life. Without going into you know as as much detail as you want, um, if you could just talk to you a bit about what happened, um, you know, and and the aftermath of it as well. Yeah. So so like the, the in two thousand seventeen um, and leading up to two thousand seventeen, there was a couple of heavy thought processes of suicide. Mm. Mm. Um, one attempt, and I'll talk about suicide later. What suicide is, um, especially to me, but. Um, yeah, the whole build-up was I I I was yeah, the the bot I was at the bottom like that that is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing like I I lost the contact properly really with my child. Like I wasn't fit enough to be a dad. Like I was losing business. I was I got into drugs again and uh, I was I was abusing steroids, abusing them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I I remember sat at home. And it's oh, there's so many key events, but I remember sat at home and um, I wrote, I just wrote all these things down and, and stuff like that. And then it was, it was just, we went out to uh, a, a Christmas party. We joke about it now, quite 
weirdly, but I got really, really drunk, really, really drunk on that night. And then I, what I did is I was like, if I keep drinking, this is gonna, this is gonna help me loads, mm. let me loads. Escapism. Then, yeah, yeah, massively. And I was doing that quite a bit. I was by no means an alcoholic, 100% not, but I was drinking. Um, something that people didn't really recognise or know, and then, and then I, I came back. I came back. I said a few things had happened, and I was with my girlfriend at the time. I didn't come back, and um, we kind of had a bust up sort of thing. And, you know, she's. But I put her through a lot, and it is what it is. But she's. I remember her saying something very similar about it's like that's you're not you right now. Mm. Not in mental health, she had no idea what was about to happen. It was just like when you when you have a drink or something or when you do these you things, change. you change. Yeah. Um and then I remember just sat there at home and no, like I said a few other things happened. I remember sat there and I was just like I didn't in my head I was like, Why am I waiting for like why am I waiting for all these things to go on? Like and then I remember I started throwing up and then I drifted that was it. I I, I must have drifted unconscious. Mm. Um, during that time, I'd phoned my 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 partner, ex partner, and was like, "I fucked up." She'd come round, and she saw me upstairs. It's all open pan, and I was laying there and sick, everywhere in my mm. mouth, come out my like just just covered. I, I, I'm unconscious, um, and she. This is I'm going by her accounts now. So she'd ran outside and pulled a, a car down, mm. and some guy bless him, came in and I was still unconscious and mm. so he, he's walked into this situation as well. Mm. Little did he know I, I tried killing myself. Mm. Um, and then I come round for whatever it was. I, was like, I don't know what they did. And when I started coming round, the ambulance was there and I, I, didn't, I didn't have a clue. Like, mm. I had no idea what had gone mm. on. It was like no recollection. And then the doctor was, not doctor, the paramedic was like, how much have you taken? Mm. You know, what what have you taken? And I just, I just couldn't answer anything. Mm. And then, uh, and then as, as time went on, I was just, I just remember that I just was like a failure. Mm. And I was like, I'm still here. Like, whatever's gone on, like, I'm still here. Mm. Um, I was taken to the hospital, um, put on a lot of, ridiculous amount of checks and then going through the process like what you had taken um, and uh, the, when I spoke to them they were like you, you, you're lucky you're not dead mm. um, and I remember my dad went and he said look I've got to go and clean the place up because they've kicked the door down all these things mm. and he was like he said it was really scary walking in there and um, that was when I got sectioned mm. um, at the hospital there and then mm. Um, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with PTSD and bipolar in 2018. Um, what was that like when you were finally told? Like, was it a weight off your shoulders that you finally had like a label for this or, or perhaps validation about how you've been feeling all along? Um, it, was, it, was, it was mixed, mixed emotions. I know when, when they actually diagnosed me, I, mean, I still wasn't right then. It was, mm-hmm. I, I tried to take my life again mm-hmm. um, in between there. And uh, I was arrested that time. Mm. I was pulled over by police. Mm. Um, a couple of police actually pulled me over when I was going driving to to go and do everything I wanted to do. Um, 
so they so when I when all that process between then I was on crisis team I was in hospitals mm. I was day centers I was having people to come and see me I was giving my medication daily when I walked into when when I started to see doctors they're like it's PTSD it's PTSD and at that point I was like I can't be like and all you go in there is the first thing it's like a template this is I'm not going to slate the mental health service because it is what it is um, every time I walk in there they ask the same questions and they'd be like are you thinking about harming yourself? No. Are you thinking about committing suicide? No. Okay, um, right, well, you know, how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. Ah, oh, cool, there you go. And that is kind of, but that's the process. Like, mm. it's not them, that's what they're obviously told mm. to do. Mm. Then my behaviour started changing, and I don't know, like, I didn't know this was going on. And I remember going in one time, and the doctor was like, wow. I would go in, it's like someone just popped an ecstasy tablet in. He was mm. like, is this normal? Mm. And I was, I, I was like, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Little did I know, I was actually doing this in the past. Mm. I just thought it was me. Mm. Um, and a couple of months went on and I started calling pain. I went in, sat the doctor, and he was like, look, Dean, um, we've been working with you for, for a long time now and we believe that, you know, we've you've got bipolar. Mm. And I was like, I burst out laughing. I was like, bipolar. Mm. I was like, I got bipolar. Mm. And then these things, I was like, oh shit, maybe I have. And you started thinking about all the little things that and might have been. All these yeah, little things yeah. that had gone in the past. And I was like, wow, maybe I have. Oh my God, I've got a diagnosis. Mm. I'm cured. And they literally, the doctor went, I'm going to print you off some stuff, Dean, so you can go away. No, he didn't tell me nothing about bipolar. Nothing. You just said you had it? Yeah, I promise you, the doctor never told me actually what bipolar was. He said it's bipolar, and I, 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 I promise you this is how it happened. He told me how bipolar. He printed off four sheets. He said, read them. They're four different medications. Mm. Take the medic- uh, Have a read of them. You pick which one might be more suitable for you. I promise you this is how it happened. Also, I'm going to print you off some leaflets about bipolar. Have a read through there. Keeping in mind the severity of what bipolar is, especially the bipolar that I have, mm. which is rapid cycling. Mm. Um, that was it. <laughs> that was basically it. That was my diagnosis. Bloody hell. Um, after you diagnosed, you know, what treatment did you undergo and, and how did that process you know, progress into the period of recovery um, that you went through? I, was, I, I, I picked... Uh, lithium, old, old drug, um, really old drug, uh, antipsychotic drug and some other stuff. That's the one I picked because it seemed right. So with lithium, you have to have blood tests quite regularly. Um, lithium nearly killed me. Mm. I had a psychotic episode. Mm. Never had a psychotic episode, which part of a manic, hypermanic, is you can have psychotic episodes. Um very very weird situation and every time what was going on every time I was going back because I was training for a fight I found this kind of passion for boxing it was it was therapy for me mm. it was a distraction from everything else what I was doing is I was sweating everything out so every time I went and had my lithium in uh, checkup and tests I was really low mm. so they gave me more mm. and I got some really bad side effects really mm. bad I had a psychotic episode then maybe not linked to lithium they said it's not I disagree mm. uh, yeah Basically, um, and then in the end, I walked in. The doctor and said, "I point blank, I'm not taking this. That's it. Stop taking it." And then I went on a rebellion, mm. like 
anti everybody. Mm. Like, I ain't taking this. Mm. I ain't taking drugs. Like, mm. They're failing me. Mm. Yeah. You you also came out about your mental health issues in in that year. If that's if, if I'm correct in saying yeah. as well. And um, just tell me a bit about that moment. Why you wanted to do it? You know the reception it got as well and the impact it had on you. Yeah, so we sat down. So the lady that I work alongside, Lisa, who's a fundamental part to to, to where I am now, to the point where it, not many other people stayed around me. She stuck with you for the good yeah, and the bad. Oh yeah, the whole entire time. Mm. Like I owe my life to that woman, and um, I sat there. It's like I've I've got to I've got to explain why I kept cancelling clients. I need to explain why, um, what what this is and what's going on and all mm. these things. We sat down, we wrote a, I wrote a post out over about three or four days and I wrote, I said, the only way I'm going to do this is using the power of social media. Mm. Um, at that time, it was not for awareness of mental health. Mm. It was not. It was, I wanted people to understand primarily what was going on with me mm. because a lot of people were actually thinking back it, it affected so many people, the bipolar. Mm. It really did. I didn't realise that. So, yeah, we put the post up. The reception was, was like, mind-blowing. It went viral. Mm. It went so viral, it got out to Australia, and uh, a friend of mine linked me up with Vashti Whit- um, Whitworth, who's the... Um, um, Annie Whitworth is the... the lead actor of uh, Spartacus oh wow okay and she like mentored me mm. for like four months mm. and obviously he made the Netflix documentary mm. um, which is incredible it's, it's really weird I was like I've got this Hollywood movie stars widow like mentoring me mm. and all these things start evolving and then that was when I was like I'm going to take on the world I'm going to cure mental mm. health mm. And how do you use these mental health experiences to help others in your day-to-day life? Make it as relatable as possible because the more relatable it is, that person really, they don't have to talk. It's a lonely world, mental health, because mm. you don't think it's going on with anyone else. They don't have to talk. If they just realise that it's happened, happening, or somebody can come through those things and still live with it, because it doesn't necessarily go away, mm. then that's it, make it relatable. That's all, that's all my goal is with mental health, mm. is, is make it relatable. Mm. If there's one message that you wanted to give to someone who might be listening to this <coughs> pod, who has perhaps is living with a mental health condition, perhaps is struggling with poor mental health, or maybe unbeknownst to them might be living with a bipolar disorder as well, what message would you give them? It, it'd be what I didn't do. Would open my mouth and mm. talk. Mm. Very easy to say now, looking back at it, because sometimes you don't necessarily it's going wrong, but. It would it would be to open your mouth and and even if it is actually just sadness, it doesn't actually matter. Mm. But it could be something else. Like, mm. I don't know, like an example, my, my cat died. I'm sad. Well, actually, that might affect someone really badly. But that would be kind of my process of it. My, my biggest regret is not being diagnosed with bipolar. It's not joining the army. Not the bad things I've done in my life, and I've done some really bad things not the drugs I've taken. I don't regret all of those things mm. at all. I'm not going to sit there. It's a waste of my valuable mm. time. It's not going to change anything. But I have one regret that I'll carry all the way through to my deathbed and that will be not to, not to talk about it. Mm. I've never been one to change And I've never been
Now, this next topic, Dean, is something which I know has given you a lot of drive and purpose in your life, and that's rock health and fitness. So for the listeners who don't know what it is, just tell them a bit about it and how you got involved in it. Right, so um, rock health and fitness, uh, the whole concept was it was I tra- I used to train Lisa, who I spoke about in the past. She used to be my client. That's how it all evolved. So she's, she's a lot older. She's going to kill me for that. She's, <laughs> she's <like>, listening. <laughs> she's old. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was in this really bad period of time. I just, I kind of busted this franchise company and mm. stuff like that about um, in terms of like where I was going with them personally and it wasn't right for me, all that sort of thing. And I was actually going to re-enlist him back in the army, <laughs> scary enough. And um, she messaged me and was like, Dean, right, I've got this idea. Um, keeping in mind she trained to be a personal trainer and I actually worked on she's like I've got this idea I found this barn right next to near my house I want you to come and see it I'm going to turn it into a gym and I just was like whatever mm. so I drove took Evie with me as well she's like three at the time and uh, turned up his barn looked inside and I was like it was that bad Evie started crying <laughs> and it was like cattle shed thick with mud all these things mm. everywhere and she's like I'm going to turn it into a gym I was like, you know what, I've put my trust in so many people and for whatever reason it's not worked out. One, the mental health side. Two, there's just some arseholes in the world, mm. unfortunately. So I was like, I don't know, went away, thought about it. And then, yeah, I, I was like, I just, something, something just clicked. I was like, yeah, let's do it. Mm. We built it up, little tiny studio, plyboarded it out. It was dark, grungy, dingy, like, oh, hardcore training thing. Little did we know that's not our, our niche now. And then it just evolved organically. Mm. over time and our personalities and our character and our why which is really important is if you have not got your why you, you're not going to get anywhere mm. you know, it's, it, what and how is great but without your why you, you, you really ain't going to get anywhere and mm. that's how we discovered it and um, to where it is now which is thriving and I mean not thriving by income I mean thriving by personalities mm. um, you you walk in, everyone goes, wow, like, didn't even know this was here. Mm. And for some people, that's like a marketing disaster. But mm. for us, it's what makes us. Mm. You can drive past it all day long, you don't even know it exists. Mm. It's a little pond there. It's, it's not It's not a gym. Like mm. One of our key strap lines is it's, it's more than a gym. Mm. And that's how it sort of evolved to where it is now. Mm. And what impact does the gym and, and Rock Health have on your life personally? Does it give you purpose, you know, a sense of fulfilment, perhaps a boost to your self-esteem, or maybe all three? Yeah, well, at first it wasn't doing anything because I was going through that period of time. We were mm. still managing Rock when I, was, when I was going through, like, 2017 and 18. So, uh, but um, I'm passionate about... I'm, I'm, I'm an unconventional trainer. Um, I hate technology. <laughs> I don't have a diary. I have to put it in a paper one. Mm. Like... But for me, is regardless of what's going on in someone's life, the moment that someone walks in, I know I can change their life. And this is by no means in an arrogant way. You know? mm. um, and also that that person deserves to be happy. Because nine times out of 10, people are walking into the gyms because they're not happy about something. Mm. And then coach them, get them understand it's a lifestyle thing, mm. you know, and so on. And that's, that's where it's at. Mm. And when you see the impact that you've had on someone um, who might be 
trying to get into better shape or they might just be trying to give themselves routine or structure or just anything to do with fitness and exercise um what does that do to you personally i i it's, it's a little bit like a virus it's mm. um the fitness bug so to speak yeah, yeah like i've got it for different reasons but when somebody a lot of people are like oh yeah that's they'll screenshot their clients saying oh i've lost 10 12 pounds mm. but for me it's 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 quite directly linked to to the mental health as well mm. like i i've said in the past i don't want i never want anybody to go through what i went through mm. and on the flip side of it if i can change that and that's where it comes back so for me it's it gives me a purpose like mm. that person at 6am in the morning is relying on me the people that come in our group exercise classes are relying on me Mm. that I've got responsibility mm. and and that's what it is it's responsibility mm. we, we discussed off air about you know your experiences of, of using steroids in the past and this is something you're, you're happy to be open about um, I think in many ways toxic masculinity and steroid use are two very connected things um, especially for young boys now yeah. I mean people are taking steroids from an, an earlier and earlier yeah. age Man, and, and heavier as well yeah, um, crazy, just, crazy. just tell me the impact that that taking steroids had on you and, and why men need to take, you know, a, an amazing amount of care before they start, they decide to start injecting or taking pills as, yeah. as the effects, if it goes wrong, can be potentially life-changing. Oh, yeah. I mean, right, first of all, I'm not condoning taking steroids. Mm. But what I'm going to say is going to be quite contradicting in terms of it. There's a time and a place for them. Mm. And I'll remain saying that. And the reason why I'm saying that is that, one, there's medical reasons, which is great. People take it, they get a get flu or something mm. or a chest infection or because you can you can take steroids can in, take in, steroid. that, in a different way to, um, to, to, to muscle and yeah. anabole yeah um, and then for me is it's like anything in life like it has its pros and cons it's education exactly yeah. that too much alcohol bad for you too many cakes bad for you mm. no one burger never made anyone fat mm. lots did and no one salad made anyone fit it's mm. all about the moderation and the mm. control However, there is a time and place for it. Do I think it should be used in sports? Crack on. <laughs> but if that's what you want to do, however, when it comes to things like stuff like the Olympics and stuff like that, when it's a third level, there has to be mm. some sort of boundary and guidelines. Mm. However, how many people are actually taking it? God, I mean, athletics now and, and boxing, you just don't know. You can't, you can't trust a lot of things no, anymore, can you? you can't. And I think the... You, when you're in that mindset, someone comes up to you and you want to be number one. You, you want to get ahead. You'll do you'll anything, do, won't you? Do you do a lot. You'll mm. do a lot. And I, I, I've been at a top athlete level. And mm. if I was to revert back in time, and it's gonna, everyone's going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe he's saying this, but I've taken steroids. That's how easy influenced I was to mm. be bigger. Mm. If somebody come up to me and they said, you could be the best, if you do this, of my values, yeah. yeah. I've got a very high chance of saying yes. Mm. Um, then on the flip side, you know, if, if it's on the worst side, is that it messes you up. Especially if you mix it with a lot of alcohol and heavy drinking or you mix it with other things as well, it becomes a cocktail, doesn't it? Well, yeah. you're injecting a foreign thing into your body. And the problem is now, it's like anything with drugs, it's mass-produced. Mm. And there is people with labs at home. Mm. So you're not just injecting... They say testosterone. You can be injecting a dirty lab. 
Or dirty needles. Dirty needles. Like, you do not know what you're injecting now, unfortunately. Exactly like if someone chooses to take an ecstasy tablet. Mm. That's your risk. You chose to take that risk. That's free will, isn't it? Yeah. Free will. You have you made that decision to take something you do not know what's inside it. Regardless of what you say and what, regardless, regardless of what you're, regardless you're told. Regardless yeah. of your best friend. Mm. You chose to do that. It's that same as Stelwood. Where it goes from there after, it's going to end on different personalities. But mm. yeah, I heavily, 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 heavily used steroids. Mm. And coming back to rock health and fitness now, just finally, for those who want to get involved in rock health and fitness, who want to maybe see what it's like, maybe join a session, where can they go and, and follow on social media or, or wherever else? So we've got your the, the obvious relevant means of the Instagram, which is rock health and fitness gym. And then we've got the Facebook page, rock health and fitness. Um, and we're based just outside Hitchin in a little rural area called Offley. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's away from everybody else. But um, we just want people to... It's an experience, mm. Rock Health and Fitness. So isn't it, I said it's not a gym, it's an experience. Mm. Um, so we're really open. We grow organically. There's mm. none of this... Join one session, sign mm. up for 12 months, mm. 1999. Like the, the, the franchises like, and all those yeah, chains, yeah. It's just like, why do that? Unfortunately now, is we have so much access to content and everything and, and, and uh, gym platforms, but obesity levels are rising, people mm. are getting unhappier, mm. depression is on the increase. Mm. Okay, someone's failing someone somewhere. Mm. However, our doors are just open. So it's mm. like, come in, come and do a class. Sit there, watch a class. Come in, have a chat. It's like a home from home. Change for you, my love. Right till the end. One part of your life, Dean, that I know had a massive impact on you was was becoming a father um, to your daughter Evie. Now, first of all, just just tell me how old you were when she was born, and then the impact that had on you. Yeah, so I was just um, it was like the year when I was turning twenty five. So young, same age as me yeah, now. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, some people say it's young, but he's uh, yeah, she's. Um, it wasn't the impact I initially had at first. Uh, I was going through so much, and I could I could dive in depth of what was going on, and it, it, it's in the past now. Mm-hmm. And there's three sides to a story. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what happens, the child, my child, Evie, mm-hmm. is happy now. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought it was going to change my life. It did change my life, but it didn't change my life at first in the mm. way that I expected it to. Oh, okay. In what sense? I had this numbness. I had no connection with people. Mm. Like, I obviously loved that child, but there was something there that... Sort of like a blockage, so to yeah, speak? Yeah, and I have that now. It's, mm. a, it's, 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 it's part of having PTSD, mm. and, it's a, and it's part of bipolar, and I still struggle with that now. Mm. Um, did it make me change as a person? Uh, for a couple of months it did. <laughs> and then I went back to just being the dean I was before. And mm. um, I started to lead a bit of a fake life inside mm. the home with, mm. with Evie's mum. And how was it becoming a dad in regards to sort of protecting her maybe from, from your mental health when you were struggling or when you were going through particular low points, as she's getting older, do you feel like, in a safe way, you might expose her to, to times when you've been low and say, like, you know, daddy's not feeling very well at the moment, but this is yeah. why, and, and helping her understand that? Um, 
I, I actually, once she was born, I was going through quite an extensive court battle with her. Like, again, it's, it's, yeah, it's all in the past. Yeah, it's all yeah. in the past. But for me, it was if I had her in my possession, she Evie's my safety blanket. Mm. If I'm having anxiety issues, she's no people realise this. She's my blanket. She's what forces me to go out. She's what I said so the other day. Sometimes I can't walk into a shop and it blows people's minds. Mm. They're like, why? Sometimes I can't go and do stuff. Like, mm. And everyone's like, that doesn't make sense. You've just done a class and a talk. They can't get their head around it. They can't, can't rationalise it. So yeah. Evie's my safety blanket. Like, she primarily, or primarily the reason for my survival. Mm. Um, so if I ever had her, regardless if there was no emotional connection towards it, I always knew I was safe. Like, a child from the age of... However old it was, one, two, three, up to now six, she she will never realise when she's older how important she is to me, not mm. just as a daughter. And she'll remain that person for mm. the rest of my life. Mm. She's she's more than a daughter. She's she she gets me through so much mm. that she doesn't realise. Mm. And as she as she gets older and you know, obviously into her teenage years and she she begins to understand deeper you know deeper emotions or, or more complex things when it comes to human beings do you foresee sort of imparting your wisdom about your experiences onto her about how she can deal with her own mental health or or maybe tell her about what went on yeah. when she was when she was a lot younger than she is now it's yeah it's a, it's a difficult one isn't it though isn't question. it question yeah. i think time and place dictates mm. I'm never ever going to be forefrontal. I'll use it as advice if a situation arises. So if all of a sudden I found out my daughter's gone and smoked weed, mm. hey, listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Trust me, your yeah. dad's been through it. Um, but if she's struggling with stuff, and you know, and I know she is, then I'm the best person to talk to. <laughs> Do I want her to know about what happened to think how amazing dad I am? Hell no. No, like if she can go her whole life with no mental health illness mm. and she can live, get married, live happily ever after and never ever know about what went on with me, mm. that would be the best possible outcome. Mm. However, as I'm getting older and I'm starting to build more, it's going to be quite apparent that, every, that as I start to do things like more talks mm. and where I want to go with this when mm. I'm older, she's more than likely to know. Mm. Um, and what was the one thing that you felt that, that, that Evie changed about you and or, or perhaps made you learn about yourself? Um, another hard question, really. That it's not about me. Um, with mental health, you, you, you should be selfish to a degree. However, a lot of my decisions that I've done in life have been selfish, selfish, not mm. selfless. They've been selfish, and they've had a detrimental impact on other people's lives. Mm. So she's given me that purpose and a responsibility. I, I, with the bipolar and stuff like that, I used to walk away from things because it was the easiest option. Mm. If I was struggling, I ain't gonna do it. If I'm doing this, I'm not gonna do it. And that was it. I can't. I can't walk away from my child, mm. like, for, for loads of different reasons, loads mm. and loads of different reasons, but everything else in my life I, I, I have or I could. We wander down cobble streets, then retire to tired sheets. 
our final topic of conversation, Dean, and, and it's one that I always have with all my special guests, is just a general natter about our mental health. So just firstly, and maybe a little bit briefly, how is your mental health at the moment, would you say? Oh, huge, huge improvements. Mm. Massive improvements. Still there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It never goes away, does it? It's still there. Yeah. Um, and when you had that first conversation about your mental health with someone, do you feel like a part of you changed or that you'd entered a new chapter in your life? You mentioned it, you, it was with Lisa, but was there any conversations prior to that? How significant did it feel at the time? Huge. I think I, think I start with bipolar. Every episode is a new chapter. Mm. <laughs> and that's a you know, way of putting it. But yeah, it did. I think for me was... After suicide, I felt like I had to. I felt like I had to make peace with everybody, and actually, I mm. didn't. Mm. I don't. It was me. Mm. Um, guys, what goes on? But yeah, so yeah, it did the the post, mm. the first post I put up, that was probably the most detrimental impact because that was when I realised I was like, wow, mm. these people want to understand want to care don't get me wrong I'll be honest with you there's a few people I've not spoken to or not seen because of it mm. that's fine be major peace with that I mean, mm. well yeah I mean mm. they just chose not to be around me mm. people like do you think that's no it's your decision why mm. would I sit there and be bothered about mm. it you know you couldn't you just can't deal with it for whatever mm. reasons they might be going through their own issues mm. and they can't be around mine dealing with mine so it's mm. fine so yeah the post was the probably most mm. detrimental impact um, and what triggers do you think you have that affect your mental health um, and, and the ones that you've figured out um, sleep I work like these mentally long days mm. even my psychiatrist is just like I don't even know how he said if you, if he said if you didn't take medication didn't have a sleep, he said God knows where you'd be right mm. now um, like easily sort of 80 plus hour weeks training mm. all day I'm training for an Ironman at the minute mm. and you know, trying to, to do things but sleep's being one of them and they're really simple things mm. um, having everything in place like not leaving anything too late mm. to, to get stuff done mm. um, when you can and um, I don't know, I think the, big, the biggest one for me comes with big cats probably the environment mm. um, I don't I don't like being around people, although I do. People for me are quite big triggers. Mm, mm, mm. Like without realizing, they'll ask loads of questions, like or they'll do stuff, and and there's some people quite big triggers for me. Mm. Um, how it goes down, but it's different. I think triggers are all simple, simple mm. things. There's nothing really complex about them. Mm. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked and which ones that haven't? I've learnt now when my body needs a rest and instead of fighting it, saying, I can't train you today. Mm. And that's why it's important people know what's what's going on with you mm. because they just think you cancel on you. Yeah, and you're when too now, busy or you're not making time for them, yeah. Yeah, a couple of my clients last Friday, this is a trigger, I lost my wallet, I was already in a, in, in a bit of a mad one mm. and... I just messaged my clients and said, look, I can't, I can't train you today. Mm. But the reason why is that they won't get the best product out of me. Mm. And um, I'm trying to provide a service. So for me now, it's just saying, look, I can't do it today. Mm. I need to take the morning off. Mm. Um, that's, that's probably one of them. 
why do you think it's important that, that we as men open up and try and normalise the conversation on mental health? You know, historically, men have struggled to express how they're feeling. Um, do you think society's taught us that maybe it's not okay for us to show vulnerability? And what do you think we need to do more? Yeah, of course it Yeah. Right, come on. Right, when, when I grow up, you're a son, man up yeah, and all that sort don't of stuff. Don't cry yeah. and cut yeah. your knee and, yeah. and all these sort of things. And, you know, you're, you'll get over it. Mm. So, you'll get over it it's such yeah, a common one isn't like, it you'll get over it well I'll just get over these suicidal thoughts mm. shall I which I still get now mm. um, yeah massively we've it, it's evolution alright um, one of the reasons why 10, 20, 30 years ago mental health wasn't so awareness well one people did not talk about it mm. two we had no social platforms and three no one knew really what mental health was other than crazy. Yeah, and that's what happens. But it's there. It's bigger now because of things like phones and the environment and Mm. so on and the stresses, you know, we've got so... Forget being a kid now. Oh my God, I've talked about this a lot. How could I... I don't know how I could be a a kid now. Yeah, I would survive. survive. I only got bullied on Facebook. Imagine getting bullied on eight different platforms. Exactly. Every time you wake up, ping, you're fucking like all these. But um, yeah, so... 100%, 100%, like, what it is, is that a male, alpha, whatever you want to call it, is a typical stereotype of one. Mm. You've got to have muscles. You've got... We st- look at He-Man. Mm. You didn't see He-Man walking around, like, scrawny, skinny, mm. which isn't really scrawny. He transforms into He-Man, he tra- the boy, yeah, doesn't he? He transforms boys. into He-Man. It's like, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, if you was to... I used to do a thing with, with the groups I used to talk to about stereotyping. I remember with a group of kids I was talking to, like young kids, and I was like, I, did, I was like, draw, draw a man. Mm. And even then... Ooh, big muscles big and muscles, all that, yeah. Big head, and every single one going mm. with their arm up, like a bicep pose. Mm. So, yeah, it's built from time. Really, the whole, one of the biggest reasons why we can't talk about it is because we're not allowed to show emotion. Mm. Because it's part of a, a, a banquet, you know. There's a criteria to be a man. Mm. Well, I think that's all we've got time for in this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Dean, thank you so much for being my special guest on this, this edition's pod and for checking in with me. Thank you so much to all the venters who tuned in. And as always, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling really generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's strange.